Well, you survived Christmas. Well done. There are quite a few gaps. I'm not sure everybody has, but well done. I don't know about you, but for me, Christmas has like, been a long time coming here. I, I work in a school, so for a lot of my kids, Christmas started on the 1st of November. That's as they took whatever decorations they had up on the 31st of October down, and some of them started to put their Christmas trees up. And really, it's just been getting more and more hyped, more and more excited, day by day, as, as cards were made, as calendars were made, as nativities were sorted out, as I had many discussions with the teachers about the number of different innkeepers the donkey needed to visit for it to be an acceptable nativity play. And I thank you to Luke Holiday for correcting me on that a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and then, then we get to the school Christmas meal, which is 300 kids and a sea of sprouts and turkey and ridiculous toys coming out of crackers, kids squabbling over little plastic rings and spiders and magnifying glasses that are so small you need a magnifying glass to find them and cracker jokes that result in sort of one of three different responses so either you get the kids rolling around hysterically laughing or going oh that was rubbish or going I don't get it <laughs> so you see because I've got a couple. <laughs> You've got to, really. So, why did the turkey cross the road? Well, Andrew, I will tell you. To prove he wasn't a chicken. That was a bit of a mix. I think there was all three going on there. Um, who is Santa afraid of? Mm. Not Mrs. Santa, the elf and safety officer. <laughs> okay, just one more. What do reindeer hang on Christmas trees? Ornaments. Oh, we have a winner. <laughs> Ornaments. Very good. No, no, I can't afford to give up my day job. <laughs> we have been working our way through Jeremiah at, at a speed that's unknown in Jubilee. And we, we're kind of almost at the end of it. But we've had a few weeks of doing all sorts of different things and we've got guests and visitors here. So before I get to the short passage that I want to look at this morning, I just want to kind of quickly... Well, have a bit of an overview, really. And when you look at it, Jeremiah, actually, the whole book seems a bit disorganised. There's not, not really an order to it. It jumps backwards and forwards in time. There's different sorts of writing in it. There's stories about Jeremiah. There's prophecies by Jeremiah. There's stuff that's going to happen to Judah, stuff that's going to happen to the nations around Judah. There's, there's huge parts with Jeremiah wishing that actually he'd never even been born. To be fair, he had a point. He had, 
He was one of the most persecuted prophets in the Bible. There's all sorts of places in Jeremiah that it tells us the horrible stuff that happened to him. His friends betrayed him. They let him down. They cursed him. He was hit. He was put in stocks. He was called a liar. He was seized, threatened with death, thrown into a dungeon, bound in chains, falsely accused, in the end taken away to Egypt. Actually, tradition says he was stoned to death in Egypt. That's not really a happy story so far. And the same themes repeat time and time again in Jeremiah. Over and over again, he's stressing that the nation of Judah is is full of a backsliding people, people who are walking away from God. He says that 13 times. I didn't count them, but the guy who read one of the commentaries did. He talks about the Hebrews, the people of God, having committed sins or transgressions or iniquities 53 times. Talks about Judah returning 47 times that they're going to be scattered 14 times. They're going to be held captive 51 times. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, it talks about the Babylonians, the people who were going to capture the people of Judah. It talks in Jeremiah more about them there than any other book. Jeremiah gets called to be a prophet when he's just a little boy. And then he goes and makes a career of prophesying 151 different prophecies all marked with the words the word of the Lord he talks about total destruction he's so angered the kings of Judah who really didn't want to hear his message at all didn't want to hear about their imminent gruesome endings His central message was that as a people you are going to get exiled. He's making terrible predictions. Jeremiah's got to deal with the kings who want to imprison him, who want to execute him. In fact, one of them gets a copy of the prophecies that he's written down, chucks it in the fire. Another one wants him killed. Eventually, Judah... Jerusalem, a ramsack, they're burned, just like Jeremiah's been saying all along. The population get dragged off. Jeremiah stays behind at first, but then even he's taken to Egypt. They're all doomed. Do you know what? It sounds like something from Dad's army, doesn't it? We're all doomed. I guess that's a cultural reference which isn't going to translate very well. There are huge, dark parts in this book. But in contrast to this this doom and gloom narrative that's going on, we get in the middle, chapters 30 to 33, the book of consolation, it's often called. God's words of, of mercy, of hope, of comfort. God speaking grace to his people when they're in the wilderness. Jeremiah speaking with God's voice, saying that the people are going to be brought back. They're going to be led back to Judah and things are going to be different. 
that when they come back, they're going to worship with full devotion, not just going through the motions, that there will be a change, that they will have a real relationship with God. God tells Jeremiah to write it all down. He writes that the day is going to come when God will restore the fortunes of the people, that they're going to get their homeland back. It says in chapter 30 that at this moment, men are in so much pain that it's like they're going through childbirth. But in the end, people will be free. They'll serve God and there will be a righteous king, just like David, instead. God will bring the other nations to an end, but the people will be saved. Things are bad now, but God's going to restore them. He's going to have compassion. Jerusalem will get rebuilt. The people can be merry again. Things will be like they used to be, and better. And then we get into chapter 31, where Jeremiah writes that God's going to be the God of all the families of Judah. The people who've survived life in exile will find God again. He's going to build them up. The people will plant vineyards. They'll celebrate. They'll praise God. They'll be all together. People from every part of the world will be led back to Judah. It says the blind, the lame, women and children, everyone will be led back. He'll treat them like a firstborn child. It says young women will dance. Everybody will be merry again. They'll even play the tambourine. I've never found a justification for playing a tambourine, but apparently that's what Jeremiah's saying will happen. And then we get to these verses. Jeremiah 31, verses 10 to 14. If you have a Bible and wish to turn to it, feel free, but the words are going to appear on the screen anyway. This is what Jeremiah says. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem him from the hand of those stronger than they. They'll come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They'll rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden and they'll sorrow no more. The young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I'll give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. A much cheerier part of the book than we've encountered before. When Jeremiah's writing this, he's writing it with, with different, well, one of the commentaries called them horizons, different times in mind. He's, he's writing to the people of Judah then, and he's also speaking to us now. Actually, he's also speaking 
to the future, to end times. Now, I'm too scared to go near the end times, so I'm just going to stick to what Jeremiah was saying to the people then and what that means to us now. And this whole section is about God showing grace to his people even when they're far away from him, even when they're in the wilderness. Because these people had badly betrayed God. The kings and the people hadn't listened to the warnings about what would happen if they didn't change. They still hadn't changed when disaster after disaster befell the people. But God, and how often do we say that? But God is a God of grace. And the people get undeserved, unearned, unmerited grace from him. And I'm going to do something exceptionally different this morning. I have four points. I know, I know. It's okay, I won't spend long on any of them. But I have four points. And they all come from verses 10 and 11 in here. It says that God gathers his people to himself. That God watches over his people that God delivers his people and that God redeems his people. So my first point, God gathers people to him. He knows where his people are. In the previous couple of verses, it talks about people coming from the north and the south, from the remote regions of the world. It talks about the lame, the pregnant, all people. The consequence of the nation turning from God had led them to be scattered everywhere. But God knew where they were all at. And in Jeremiah's time, well, sadly not in Jeremiah's time, but at that time, the people return. There is an actual return of the scattered Jews from Babylon. They come back in several waves. It starts with the decree of Cyrus of Persia in 538 BC. The people are gathered back together. God draws them to be his people again. Jeremiah's prophecy comes true in those times. But what about us? Well, there's a verse... In Revelations, Revelations 7, 9, it says this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. In the Old Testament... The people that God was gathering back were the people of Judah. Now, God is gathering people from everywhere. From every people group. From every background. From every culture. From every walk of life. Now, there are no barriers. Where you're from isn't a barrier 
to God calling you to be part of his people. That's one of the great things about Jubilee is the number of different nations that we see here. God is gathering a people from the whole world. What you've done or what you've not done is not a barrier to you being part of God's people, to being gathered into his family. I've heard many testimonies from people on different Alpha courses I've had the privilege to be involved with. People who've had all sorts of things go on in their background. Being gathered into his family. People who've served time for things they've done. People who haven't. But people who knew that they had been added into his family. People who knew that Jesus had saved them and they'd been gathered into the family of God. Now, we've got family and friends and guests here this morning. I don't know everyone. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then getting right with God, being gathered into his people, is available for you. You, you might say, well, you don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't. But he does. And he wants to gather people. He wants them gathered, delivered, redeemed, all the other stuff I said in my introduction. The barrier is not race. The barrier is not background. It's not your circumstances. The barrier is not saying yes to Jesus. He's gathering a people. And if you aren't already part of that, you can be. So he's gathering a people. He also watches over his people. In the times of Jeremiah, God is definitely watching over the people. They went through some dreadful times. But he's lining lining up circumstances, lining up events to bring his people back. He puts people in the right places at the right time to organize and order events so that the people can return. He lines up Nehemiah, he lines up Ezra, he puts kings in place who are going to facilitate the people coming back, that the walls can then be rebuilt, that the temple can be rebuilt. God watched over the people whilst they were in exile. And he watches over us too. He knows what's going on in your life. Doesn't matter whether you know him or whether you know it. He knows everything that's going on in every part of your life. Good or bad. If you're a Christian, he is looking out for you. Sometimes, sometimes it might not feel it. When we see bad things happen to friends and family, when we read of stuff happening in the world on the newspapers or on the TV, when we hear bad news, it might not feel like it. Some people are going through some quite difficult stuff. It raises fundamental questions 
Why did it happen? How can God let me go through this? There are important questions, actually. You should ask them. There's another plug. Ask them. It's not wrong to ask the question. But if you look at Jeremiah's life, he went through horrible, horrible stuff. Why is this happening to me? Why is whatever it is happening to me or the people I care for? It isn't because God isn't watching. We don't know the answers to every single situation. But God gives us promises. In Matthew 28, 20, he says, I am with you right to the end of the age. Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or terrified. The Lord, your God, goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Philippians 4.19 God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches. And then a couple of other ones. One in Romans and then Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for you are with me. God watches over us and cares for us all of the time. I remember when I first became a Christian, I, I wasn't the brightest. I'm still not the brightest. And somebody read something out to me which I assumed was from the Bible. And then I searched the Bible for it and searched a concordance I didn't own one, I borrowed one. And looked everywhere for this fantastic scripture and couldn't find it. And then asked my friend, where, where is it in the Bible? And he told me it isn't in the Bible and I was wasting my time looking for it. But it was a fantastic poem and you've probably encountered it or heard it before. It was called Foot, Footprints and it was all about you know, walking through life, walking through the good bits, walking through the bad bits. And then the person who wrote the poem, when they get to the end of their life looks back and when they see the hard bits of their life there's only one set of footprints rather than them and God walking together and the question is so why is there only one set of footprints why did you abandon me why aren't you looking out for me and the poem goes Lord you, you said once I decided to follow you you'd walk with me all the way but I noticed that during the saddest and the most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I needed you the most, you would leave me. He whispered, My precious child, I love you and I'll never leave you. Never, ever, during your trials and testings, when you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I was carrying you. He watches over us he's gathering us as a people he's watching over us all the time and he delivers his people this was literally true for the people of Judah they were brought back from Babylon they were invaded carried off into captivity 
but their culture survived. They returned home 70 years later. Now, normally when a country gets invaded and taken over, it's destroyed. Its individual identity goes forever. This didn't happen. God really did deliver his people. And if we put our New Testament eyes on, God's still delivering people. In the same way that God delivered the people then from dangers and trials, the stuff they faced on the ground in their day-to-day lives, he still does the same for us. As Christians, we are delivered from the power of evil. It says this in Romans 6.14, Sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under law, but under grace. He delivers us. He delivers us from temptation. From temptation that will be too great for us. It says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you're tempted, he will provide a way out so that we can endure it. He delivers us from temptation. He delivers us from fear. Fear is a huge thing in our world. Jobs, finance, health, relationships, spiders. Fairly sure that's not on the list. The future, failure, success, technology. Even Jesus' disciples weren't immune to fear, even when Jesus was with them. There's the grip in in Mark 4 where they're, they're caught in a storm. And Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? They were terrified. He delivers us from fear. It says this in Proverbs, Proverbs 132 and 33. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them. The complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear or harm. Whatever we face, he's in it with us. He delivers us through every situation. Sometimes, that deliverance is God simply walking through all of our trials with us, carrying us sometimes, comforting us, encouraging us. But he also gives us tools so that we can be delivered from the influence of bad stuff, of damaging stuff in our lives. He gives us spiritual armor so that we can battle against powers of the dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms, as it says in Ephesians. We can defend ourselves with the shield of faith, extinguishing arrows that are sent against us of doubt and guilt, jealousy, evil speech and temptations. We can have faith 
in God that he can deliver us from all these evils. He gives us, as it says, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, where we can overcome, be delivered from evil things. We can overcome the evil one by proving that his temptations are lies, by knowing the truth, because the truth sets us free. We can be delivered, set free, overcome all of our fears, worries, and temptations. We can overcome, but it's not because we're big and clever. It's because he chooses to be the one who delivers us. He chooses to be the one who delivers us from these things and gives us the strength to do it. It's not us, it's him. Deliverance from sin, rescue from trials, escape from evil influences in the world only come through Jesus. He is our deliverer. He gives us the power and the strength to win. But we're still human, so what if we still muck up, if we still sin? Because we can. At times we do displease God. He doesn't love us any less. We can still feel a failure and a mess sometimes, though. We need to realize that we've died to sin. We no longer have to be mastered by it. We can choose not to sin. We're not slaves. Before we were Christians, before we received Jesus, actually, sin was our master. But that power has been broken. The legal right for us to be held captive by sin has been smashed. We've been delivered. All of our sin, past, present, future, it's all been paid for. It's not that God rescues us, delivers us, and then excuses us. All our sin is paid for. It's just when you become a Christian, you don't pay for it. He does. Which is the fourth point. He redeems his people. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah's times, Jerusalem's laid to waste. The temple's destroyed, the houses are burned, most of the people are taken away. But after 70 years of exile, they come back. That exile had a massive impact on them. When they returned, they didn't return the same people. When God brought them back, when he redeemed them, they were a very different people. They would, would not, never again be corrupted by 
false gods from surrounding nations. Actually, as they return, a massive revival takes place. They rebuild the temple. The nation returns to God. They're changed forever. They wanted to serve God. They wanted to follow his laws. But sadly, over time, the laws became more important than loving God and following him. The laws started to be misquoted and misapplied. In fact, by Jesus' time, the religious leaders, they, they turned God's laws into a confusing mess of rules. Pick an area of life and there were rules to interpret it. Every tiny little part. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says this. He says, The people honoured me with their lips, but their heart was far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as their doctrines the rules, the precepts of men. By Jesus' time, this, this, well, I want to please God, had been translated into the letter of the law mattered, not the spirit behind it. These were the people of God, the people who'd been led out and brought out of captivity, but they'd lost their love and it had become a matter of rules. Can I do this? Can I not do this? So what about us? What about us? Well, if this offends you, I'm sorry. I'm not, but I feel like I should say that. We are full of sin. We are full of doing stuff wrong. Misapplying the rules. Ignoring the rules. Making mistakes. Times when we've got good intentions, but blow it. Times when we've got grand plans to do a great work, and then don't do it. Times when we know what's right, and we intend to do what's right, and we don't. We fall flat on our faces. And times when we just choose to do things wrong. We, without Jesus, are dead in these mistakes. Hang on a minute, Neil. You've just said that he delivers us from fear, from evil, from sins. He delivers us from these things. He gives us a way of avoiding them. That's true, he does. But we all fail. We do. It says this in James, James chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Even if you've tried your best, you've still failed. And when we examine our hearts, we've got to remember that our failure before God is much more than our mistakes. It's when we rebel against him. It's when we know God's law and we just don't follow it. It's when we go, yeah, I know that's right, but I'm going to choose to get it wrong anyway. 
we can see the consequences of these things in, in people's lives. You can see people get hooked into drink, drugs, gambling. People get hooked into different emotions, different thought patterns, selfishness, temper, pride, arrogance, hatred. These things get hold and get a power. And there's a price to pay for them. And the Bible is very, very clear. In Romans 6.23 it says, the wages of sin is death. God has got to punish sins. He's got to have sins paid for. So, the wages of sin are death. We're dead. At some point, we were all dead. And dead things can't do anything to bring themselves back to life. For God, the punishment's simple. We are separated from him forever. So, we've all sinned. We're separated from God forever. The sin's only going to get worse. It's got a penalty. It's death. And no matter what your background, it's you. That's not very cheery at the moment, is it? And if the story ended there, that would be dreadful. But it doesn't. Because God is a God of grace. God is a God who wants to redeem people. He wants to buy people back. It says this in Romans 3.24, that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. We are justified. We are set free. We're let off. Freely. We can't buy this. It's not for sale. We can't earn it. We aren't paying. We are justified. We're put right freely. How? Through the redemption. There's a price. A price to be paid. Something had to be redeemed. God's price was death. Through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to pay the price for us, for all of our mistakes, for all of our wrongdoing, for all of our bad choices and stupid actions. Jesus came to redeem us by paying the price. When Jesus went to the cross, he did a fantastic exchange. He bought and paid for us. He redeemed us. He took on himself all of the guilt and all of the shame for everything we do wrong. And even more than that, in exchange, he gave us, us his innocence and his righteousness. This redemption, this grace, is entirely of him. 
it's unprompted by us it's undeserved by us doesn't take into account anything we've done it's all about him when we were in the wilderness God showed up and redeemed us with his grace he chose to pay the price so that he could have a redeemed people I'm going to ask Andy and a band to come back up. God gathers his people to himself. You can be part of that. The only barrier is one that you put up yourself. The only barrier to being part of God's people is saying no to Jesus. To be part of his people, all you have to do is ask. God watches over his people bad stuff happens but as Christians we know that every circumstance is in God's control whilst we don't always see it and we don't always understand it we know that he is in charge and without God none of that makes sense none of it even has a purpose God watches over his people could watch over you God delivers his people God redeems his people all of those of us who are Christians here this morning have been redeemed not because we deserve it not because we've earned it but because he loves us while we were in the wilderness whilst we were far away from him he showed us love and grace and mercy and that's true of every Christian here this morning. And if that's not you, it's very simple. If that's not you, you've done stuff wrong. And it needs to be paid for. And you can either choose for that to be you, and God will let you make that choice and you can be far away from him, or you can choose to let God redeem it and pay for it you can choose you can choose Jesus you can choose to put him in charge of your life and then he will gather you in watch over you deliver you and make him part of your family forever all you have to do is ask him I'm going to stop there. I'm going to, I'm going to pray and then I think we're going to finish with a song of worship. Lord Jesus, thank you that you chose to redeem us. Thank you that you want to gather a people to worship you. Thank you that whatever we face, you're watching over us. And thank you that you give us the strength. You give us the strength to face every situation, every trial, because you, <laughs> you are the great deliverer and redeemer. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.